Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. We're pretty booked up for interviews, I think through March now, but we are always looking for Bigfoot accounts and especially Bigfoot with high strangeness. On tonight's show, we're going to go back to Berks County, virtually. Yeah, I mean, it would be a pretty easy drive, but... <laughs> I think our last Berks County story was probably Jenny Beam. I don't think we've had anything since. We might have talked about Berks County a little bit when we were talking when we did the powwow show. That's true. As well, because there um, are some roots there. Yeah, Homan, who wrote the Long Lost Friend, is from Berks. But as far as a, a primarily Berks County episode, this is going to be the first one since Jenny Beam. Yeah, for for people who do not live in the Mid Atlantic or South Central Pennsylvania. South Central Pennsylvania. Maybe like a little geographic hint. This is not that far outside of Philly, you know, like so if, west of Philadelphia by it, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. If, if you divide the state, Philadelphia is on the eastern side. Pittsburgh is on the western side. Harrisburg is in the middle, but closer to the eastern side. This is between Harrisburg and Philadelphia. Between Harrisburg and Philadelphia. Berks County. Up in the mountains. I love Berks County. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just, um, 
I really loved our trip. I mean, not just because we can't do those anymore, but I really loved our trip to to see where Jenny Beam grew up. Well, we might be heading back to find some of these characters that we talk about tonight, at least find their graves and, and see what uh, we can dig up. They could still be there. The characters? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we have the funeral notices for all of them. Oh, do we? Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about two hermits and a another character tonight he's kind of an a, eccentric kind of an eccentric he's kind of reminds me of uh berks county's own Leatherman, in a way he does from the pictures resemble that before we get into our stories tonight though i do have a little bit of sad news if you remember way back in episode 62 it was called mirror men who moved like owls the witness was jedediah and that episode was particularly uh, poignant, I think, because it, it led to the whole Jumping Frenchman episode, you know, mm-hmm. revelations from that episode. It really kind of opened this other idea up as far as Flannel Man goes. Well, we got the sad news that uh, Jedediah passed on New Year's Eve. I met him when I was in Tennessee. Uh, heck of a nice guy. Extremely talented musician. His band Goat Herder played there at the Strange Realities Festival. Super nice guy. His table was right next to mine. We got to hang out all day. Oh, it's just a real loss for, for the community. I think uh, just a heck of a nice guy. Raised goats. <laughs> Had a little farm with his wife. I think, and and uh, they have a GoFundMe where someone set up a GoFundMe for them. Oh, do we can for... put that in the links? For yeah, everybody. I'll put it in the links. Two the that URL is a little too wacky to just read out, but I'm gonna put that in the show notes if you're so inclined. That's to help his wife going forward, I think, and, and so forth. It's uh, just really shocking, shocking news. My uh, best wishes to his wife and his family. And heck of a nice guy, Jedediah. He will be missed. All right, so we've been researching like heck all day. You had your nose in the virtual books. <laughs> <laughs> and some real ones. I just yeah, think for some real true. ones, too. Yeah. Oh, and... Uh, I did my research, so you haven't heard what I researched very much. I haven't heard about what you researched very much. But in a very strange, familiar way, you gave me the perfect person to research. That's great. That's awesome. These characters are all related because they're all in Berks County around the same time. They're all there. And as I want to do, I'm going to start out with two hermits who may have a, a strange connection. So first we're going to be talking about Matthias Berger, Blue Mountain Hermit. He's a bit of a mystery before 1879. We know he came from Germany, probably alone. It doesn't look like he had any wife or kids. He did have siblings back in Germany, as we'll hear, but they stayed in Germany. He settled in Berks County, likely sometime after the Civil War, but some of the newspaper dates vary. Some of them say he came before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We think we found the passenger list on the ship when he came over, and maybe he came like right after the Civil War. Yeah, it was like September of 1865. Now, if, I wonder if that's the right Matthias Berger we found. There's a, um, a huge amount of people, immigrants at this point, that were indentured servants. If he came alone, there's a possibility that maybe he was an indentured servant. Although, there really wasn't any... Like, we didn't find him living with other people in, like, that capacity. We didn't. We know he was a, a wood chopper, but beyond that... Who wasn't back then? <laughs> well, 
our other hermit was as well. So, so we'll see. Don't you have to be if you live out in the woods by yourself? Like, I mean, I think professionally though, he was uh, a woodchopper. Uh, they were clearing a lot of a lot of forests oh, there in Birch sense, County yeah. at that time, and, and he helped with that. In September of 1879, Matthias Berger is discovered. That's the way they phrased it in the article. Living in the Blue Mountains. Kind of the way they discovered Native Americans. <laughs> yeah. That's just... Possibly on Hawk Mountain. Not entirely sure that it was Hawk Mountain. Have you been to Hawk Mountain? I haven't, but I've been invited to go check it out with uh, Mark. Hawk Mountain is in northern Berks County, part of the Blue Mountain Range. So it's you'll hear Blue Mountains mentioned over and over again. This is from the York Daily. 26th of September, 1879. A hermit. Matthias Berger, age 65, a German hermit, has just been discovered in the Blue Mountains in northern Berks. He is a Catholic religious, lives in a small hut entirely alone, prepares his own meals, and does very little more than read religious literature. He predicts his own death, Easter week, 1881. Side note, he was wrong. <laughs> he was born in Prussia, has no relatives, or friends here, and never leaves the mountains, which he has inhabited for the past 20 years. His nearest water supply is a half mile off, and during the winter months, he uses snow water. He has long gray hair and whiskers, and looks like a patriarch. In that capacity, what does a patriarch mean? Like a religious patriarch of yeah, some I sort? I would think like, like, yeah, a, like the old, a wizardly old fella, you know. It looks like you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't know because I don't have any photos of him. I haven't seen any. I don't know if there are any. But, uh, you know, let's imagine him looking exactly like me. So like many of these hermits at the time, he became a bit of a local celebrity or at least a curiosity. And he's often discussed in the local papers. In January 1881, he visited Reading. Big news. It's amazing, too, how many different papers will report on him. This is the Delaware County Times from Chester, Pennsylvania, January 1st, 1881. The famous Blue Mountain Hermit, who has lived alone in a little low hut on the top of the mountain for a period of 24 years, has been paying a visit to Reading for a few days and tells a strange story to an Eagle interviewer. Mr. Berger is a little old man, 67 years old and about 5 feet 4 inches in height. 34 years ago, he came to America from Germany, strong, active, and in the prime of life. He obtained a position as woodchopper on the Blue Mountain, erected his rude hut on the spot where he now lives, and became so used to his lonely life that he could not leave it. The hermit's hut is composed of stout chestnut posts driven firmly into the ground. Soil and leaves are thrown against these, and the hole is covered with a thatched roof of straw. The room is perfectly circular and about eight feet in diameter. In this small place, the old man sleeps, eats, and lives. Upon pegs driven in the wall are laid heavy pieces of wood, and upon this shelf-like structure he sleeps. An old-fashioned wood stove stands in the middle, and beneath this, in a hole in the ground, are stored away about a bushel of potatoes. He lives on about 40 cents a week, and is about four miles from the nearest farmhouse. The hermit is a devout Catholic, and only comes to Reading on the occasion of the great church festivals of the year, Easter, Christmas, All Saints' Day, and 40 hours devotion. Around his hut there is a large open space, which he had planted with various kinds of vegetables, he eats no meat or butter. A number of peach trees have grown up around his lonely residence, and these bore eight bushels of fruit last year. He has some 40 visitors from Berks and Schuylkill counties during the summer. So, as mentioned before, he seems pretty content in his solitude, but he does receive guests. 
They make note of this in the paper, too. They, they did have the comings and goings of people generally more often in these old papers. Oh, and, yeah. You uh, could see who was at a hotel, who was in a hospital for what reason. There was no such who, thing as HIPAA who, or privacy. Who was visiting her aunt in the next town over or whatever. Yeah. So this is from the Pottsville Republican, 9th of June, 1886. Party of about 20 persons visited Matthias Berger at the Blue Mountain Hermit last Sunday. They were treated kindly and took tea with him before leaving. In October of 1886, Matthias Berger was presumed dead. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, October 25th, 1886. Tamaqua, Pennsylvania, October 23rd. For the past 48 hours, terrible forest fires have been raging in, in the vicinity of the Blue Mountains, and thousands of acres of woodland have been destroyed. The state authorities have been called upon to aid to employ persons to extinguish the flames. The reflections of the fires can be seen for miles. There's been no rain in this vicinity for three months. Farmers are compelled to haul water in some localities for 10 miles, and at all other places water is sold by the barrel. Matthias Berger, an old hermit who had lived on the mountains for 30 years, is reported to have perished in the flames. This is already five years after he predicted his death, right? <laughs> yeah, as I said, he was wrong. Another thing about these hermits, their deaths are often predicted in the papers. Anytime there was like a blizzard or a long cold snap or something, they would just basically print the paper, well, he must be dead. The fires in question, though, they might have been set by another hermit. Really? We'll hear about that in a little bit. Dueling hermit. Mm-hmm. Also, let us not forget that both of these hermits I'll be talking about, uh -huh. both woodchoppers. Uh-huh. The flannel men and I mean, hey, mating. you know, that's the connection. We don't know, but hey. So in 1888, Berger comes out of the mountains to live in Reading. Permanently? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the Harrisburg Daily Independent, the 26th of January, 1888. A hermit's return. Matthias Berger, commonly known as the Blue Mountain Hermit, concluded to give up living the life of a recluse and take up his residence in Reading. Berger, who is now a man of about 75 years, has lived a lonely life for 38 years on top of the Blue Mountain, several miles above Port Clinton. He occupied an old hut, circular in form, about 12 feet in diameter, living in a very simple way. He brought with him some money and at once became an inmate of St. Joseph's Hospital, Reading, to which institution he bequeathed all of his worldly possessions. That also doesn't hold... That is now customarily what happens when you enter a nursing home now, though. <laughs> you yeah, right. subconsciously <laughs> bequeath all your possessions. And they'll get it one way or the other. By 1890, though, so that is two years later, he's back living the hermit life. Did he run out of money, you think? I don't know. Run away? No, actually he didn't, because he dies with some money. Unfortunately, there's another rumor that surrounds a lot of these hermits that you'll find in, in these old papers, and that's that they somehow have money. They have money, or they know where the buried treasure is, or there's some kind of idea that these guys are, they're just wealthy misers living the hermit life, I, I suppose. I guess it was a more romantic notion that, that they had. Than someone who was just desperately poor that no one was helping. <laughs> right, yeah. If you remember back in our William Woodruff episode, yeah. he was attacked in his house. Oh, well, I mean, they would talk about that with Nelson Raymeyer as well, and that, you know, he kind of lived this hermit-style life, but it was rumored that he had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. To some extent, that was true. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot, but enough to rob. So, 
In July of 1890, Matthias Berger is reported missing. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, 16th of July, 1890. Matthias Berger, the aged and famous Blue Mountain Hermit, is mysteriously missing from his cabin, and an investigation is in progress. Mr. Berger had a considerable sum of money, but it is reported that this had been placed in a Reading bank for safekeeping. It doesn't help that these newspapers report that these guys have money. Yeah, there, there's someone who's incredibly vulnerable living alone, and he's got a ton of cash. <laughs> but it turns out, sadly, that Berger had been murdered. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. This is from the Miner's Journal, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, July 18th, 1890. See, all these different papers. They were all reporting on him. The Blue Mountain Hermit. Evidence that he was found dealt with. Sketch of his career. Reading, July 17th. As the investigation into the death of Matthias Berger proceeds, the evidence grows stronger that he was foully dealt with. The hermit had evidently been dead for a week or ten days. The body was badly decomposed and the whole upper portion of his clothing was torn into shreds, as if there had been a struggle. Peter Berkey, undertaker of Hamburg, will place the body in the airtight casket, after which it will be sent to the city for internment in the Catholic cemetery. Deceased was the owner of about $1,600, which was safely invested by Hiram Robinhold of Port Clinton, who acted as his trustee. Berger, who was a strange character on the Blue Mountains, and whose hut was located between Port Clinton and Dreersville, Schuylkill County, mysteriously disappeared about three weeks ago. And ever since, there have been suspicions of foul play. He was commonly known as the Blue Mountain Hermit. He came to this country from Germany nearly 50 years ago, and during all these years, he was domiciled in a hut on the top of the mountain, living the life of a recluse. He was about 77 years of age, and when last seen, was healthy and strong. He frequently saw no one for several months. When he first took up his domicile in the Blue Mountain, he was a woodchopper and as years passed, he became so attached to his lonely hut that he decided to remain there until he died. Several days ago, some blackberry pickers happened to pass his hunt when they found everything in confusion, the place ransacked, the hermit's clothing scattered about, his boots lying on the floor, and cobwebs built over the door, showing that no one had gone in or out for some time. Recently, $200 of the money he had invested was paid him, and it is believed he met with foul play at the hands of parties who were after the money. For several days, past parties had searched the mountains for Berger without finding any trace of him until yesterday afternoon. Deputy Coroner Wagner this afternoon held an inquest on the body of Matthias Berger, the Blue Mountain Hermit, whose body was found near his mountain cabin decomposed. The testimony at the inquest all tended to show that the hermit had met with his death at the hands of someone who wanted his money, and the jury returned a verdict that he was murdered at the hands of parties unknown. So this is another article. This is from the Reading Times, July 18th, 1890. Kind of goes over some of the same information, but it gives a little extra. The Blue Mountain Hermit. The coroner's inquest. Conclusive evidence of an atrocious murder. The Times Hamburg correspondent writes, The death of Matthias Berger, the famous Blue Mountain Hermit, has created much excitement as the coroner's inquest held today resulted in the rendering of a verdict of murder. All the evidence proved conclusively that the recluse had been the victim of a cold-blooded and premeditated murder for the money which he was supposed to carry upon his person. The body is still lying on the mountain, about eight miles northeast of Hamburg, upon the spot where the body had been placed by the murderers, when Deputy Coroner Dr. Wagner and Undertaker Peter Barkey of Hamburg arrived upon the scene. The body was in a most horrible condition, and it was placed in an airtight casket with the greatest difficulty. The following persons composed the jury. 
Amanda Mockamer, John Baum, William Geary, Daniel Miller, Dr. Harry Nice. A verdict of death by violence at the hands of parties unknown was rendered. The pantaloons and drawers had been cut to pieces and were found 100 yards distant from the body, while the hat and shoes could not be found. A crucifix was found in one of the pockets, which served to complete the identification. A blood-stained club was also found with the clothes. The hut contained numerous German books and a Bible, as the deceased had been a faithful member of the Catholic Church. The recluse was 77 years old, and a greater part of these many years had been spent amidst the solitude of the Blue Mountains, alone with nature and his beloved books. The body was hauled to Reading for internment in the Catholic cemetery. I like how Catholics are such a rarity that the crucifix <laughs> serves as, as an identifying factor. So by the end of July, they actually put up a reward for information regarding Berger's murder. This is from the Morning Call, Allentown, Pennsylvania, 29th of July, 1890. $250 reward. The commissioners of Burks set a price on an unknown murderer's head. Reading, July 28th. At a meeting of the Board of County Commissioners held today, it was decided to offer a reward of $250 for the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of Matthias Berger, known as the Blue Mountain Hermit, who resided in Albany Township and was found dead under mysterious circumstances not long ago, as related in full in these dispatches at the time. Suspicion rests upon a certain party, and it is thought the reward may unclose some mouths now sealed. I don't know who they were talking about as the suspicious party, but I found someone I'm suspicious of. So unlike in the Jenny Beam case, I'm going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think we did name some names. I think we did name names. <laughs> as a note, on Find a Grave, they don't have a photo of Matthias Berger's grave, but there's a little article about him on Find mm -hmm. a Grave that somebody wrote, and that article states that his murder or murderers were never found. So no one was ever charged. As I say this, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but uh, I'll read this and see what you think. Okay. A queer rumor. This is from the Pottsville Republican, 13th of November, 1890. A rumor was going the rounds today that Harvey Nunemacher of East Brunswick Township, convicted yesterday of stealing a gun from Daniel Geiger, had accused someone of having murdered the old Blue Mountain hermit, Peter Berger. Now, they call him Peter Berger here. Sometimes you'll see that. His brother's name was actually Peter Berger, but they're talking about Matthias. Nunemacher denied any knowledge of Berger or of his death. District Attorney Koch also heard nothing of the accusation. Sentence was suspended on Nunemacher, as there is some doubt as to his sanity. Now, it says here he's about seven years old. That's not true. That's a misprint. We've, we found his exact age. I forget what it was, but he was much older. But anyway, it says he's about seven years old and is also charged with stealing a mule and trading it to Daniel Winterstein of Port Carbon. So what do you give that Nunemacher's talking about knowing who killed Matthias Berger? Well, I think he knows something about it. Yeah. Whether he did it or whether he was one of the parties who did it. My guess, and I mean, this is just wild conjecture, but my guess is that he was there with someone else. And was thinking maybe he could get off of this if he gave up someone else. It'd be an odd thing to talk about. Just start talking about out of nowhere. Uh, you know, it's it's just a, it's an odd detail. And uh, we found several other articles about this Nunemacher guy being a rather troubled soul. He was mm -hmm. he's getting in trouble often. So we have another article which reports on his various crimes. It doesn't mention Berger at all. 
but it says the quote was his mental condition is not considered first class. He's more of a media male. <laughs> so regardless of whether or not he was involved in Matthias Berger's murder, this Nunemacher guy went on to re- live a hard life. He got in trouble a lot. and He died in a slate quarry in 1906. He was brained by a falling rock. They said it crushed his head like an egg. Mm. So even after his death, this character, Matthias Berger, there's still interest in him. And they, they keep reporting on various things. They have his will in the paper. So he did have some money. He had a little bit of money. For someone who lived in a hut. This is from the 6th of August, 1890, from the Morning Call, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Murdered Hermit's Will. The will of Matthias Berger, the murdered Blue Mountain Hermit, has been filed in the registrar's office and letters testamentary granted to Hiram Robinhold of Port Clinton. The will was executed April 22, 1884. He bequeathed to his brother, Peter Berger, and his sister, Anna Maria Reinhardt, $1,000 to be equally divided amongst their children. To Matthias Becker of Germany, he leaves $50. To Elizabeth Gerg of Pottsville, $50. He bequeaths $100 to the German Catholic Church on North 9th Street, Reading, $50 to the German Catholic Church in Pottsville, and desired that he be buried in the German Catholic Church, Reading. He bequeaths the balance of money, if any remains, to St. Paul's Catholic School, Reading. So you think the papers are done with Matthias? No. Seven, <laughs> seven years later, they're still discussing this guy's money and his will. That seems very Pennsylvania Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> From the Reading Times, April 24th, 1897. Blue Mountain Hermit's Estate goes to St. Paul's Catholic Parochial School of Reading. Judge Bland filed an opinion in the estate of Matthias Berger, in which he decrees that his estate, less the cost of legal transactions, be paid over to St. Paul's Parochial School. Berger lived on the Blue Mountains near Port Clinton and was found dead in his home on the mountain about June 25, 1890. Isn't it funny how those details, this is just seven years later and they get that detail wrong. Mm-hmm. He was found a mile away from his home. A will which was found dated April 22, 1884, in which he named Hiram Robinhold as executor. The estate, which amounts to $917.56, was willed to the children of Peter Berger and Anne-Marie Reinhardt, and a certain portion was to be given to Matthias Berger, a relative. The relatives, it was supposed, lived in Germany, and on October 1, 1891, an adjudication in the estate was filed. The executor advertised in a German newspaper in that country with a view of finding the heirs, and after an advertisement of eight weeks, he failed to secure any knowledge of their whereabouts. A petition was presented to the orphan's court to pay the money into court so that the executor would be relieved of the responsibility. Permission was granted and the money was paid. On October 3, 1896, Edward S. Kremp, attorney for Reverend Father Bornman of St. Paul's Catholic Church, presented a petition to court setting forth the facts and asked that the citation be issued to Peter Berger and Anna Marie Reinhardt and their children to show cause why the fund should not be declared residuary and paid to St. Paul's parochial school. The citation was returnable to the first Monday in February 1897. On April 2nd, William Rosenthal appeared before P.A. Bushong, Notary Public, and made affidavit that the citation was published in Germany as ordered, and the court then filed an opinion directing the clerk of the court and register of wills to pay the money to the school. A lot of people get murdered up in the mountains in Brooks County. Yeah, it kind of seems like a rough place, right? Yeah. So even up until the 1930s, the famous hermit Matthias Berger was being talked about in the paper, especially as regards his money. There's a brief note 
in the 1930s that his will was finally probated. So that much later. Was it actually, I mean, did it take that long to finally get it? I guess to, to get, the point get it where settled. it was actually settled. Oh, that's nightmarish. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. At the same time, Matthias Berger is living as a hermit in the Blue Mountains in Berks County. There's another hermit in the same area. His name was Benjamin Laub, but he had aliases. Matthias Berger? No. No, okay. They really were two different people. They were really two different people. His aliases were Benevel and Benjwich. Like Berger, Benjamin Laub lived in a small hut in the mountains in Berks County. Also like Berger, he becomes this local curiosity who's reported on for years in newspapers and even sometime after his death. He's also called the Blue Mountain Hermit, so maybe there's, you know, there's a grudge match over who, <laughs> who gets the title. We first learn of Benjamin Laub in an article which details his involvement in starting fires. Oh, well, that takes a turn. <laughs> One of the causes of the numerous mountain fires. Every fall and spring, the Blue Mountain Range between the Schuylkill Gap and the Round Top west of Millersburg has been visited by disastrous fires which have spread over many acres of fine timber and entailed serious loss upon the owners of timber tracks in the mountains. This spring there have been several extensive fires which were extinguished with great difficulty by the citizens of the northern townships of the county who turned out in large numbers to prevent the spread of flames. On Easter Sunday, Mr. Davila Clar, residing in Upper Tupohocken Township near Strasstown, and his neighbor discovered smoke issuing from the Blue Mountain at a number of places in close proximity to each other, and suspecting that the mountain was being fired, proceeded as quickly as possible in the direction of the smoke, as Mr. Clar is the owner of a large tract of lands on the mountain. Upon reaching the mountain, they found a roaring fire raging among the underbrush and dry leaves in which had already extended over a considerable area. At the same time, fire was breaking out at a number of other points. They continued their search and finally found a man named Benjamin Laub busily engaged in gathering leaves together and kindling fires. Laub was promptly ordered to surrender, and seeing a revolver pointing at him, delivered himself up. 
He was brought to Reading on Monday, and yesterday was tried in the court of quarter sessions of this county. Laub, who is a sort of half-witted person, resides alone on the Blue Mountain in a collier's hut, and resembles a wild animal more than a human being. With his large mass of unkempt shaggy hair on his head, he presented a singular appearance in the courtroom, and was the observed of all observers. He pleaded guilty to the charge of setting fire to the timber on the mountain, and alleged that his reason for doing so was that he had so often been charged with this offense by the people of the vicinity that he had determined to start the right kind of fire, and that this act was committed all for fun. Judge Sossaman sentenced him for his fun to pay a fine of $100 and the costs and undergo an imprisonment for 60 days. The defendant was also admonished that if he ever was brought into court again on a similar charge, he would be more severely dealt with. It was stated to the court before sentence was passed that Loeb had money in the bank and would be able to pay the fine if one should be imposed. Do you think he really did it, or do you think they are just trying to find somebody to blame that was in the area? I think he did it. Like, that's a weird enough thing where it's like, he's like, you're accusing me of setting fires? Well, I'm I'll gonna, set a fire. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to set a fire then. So I wonder, like, could he have been the guy? Was he a fire buck? Like, could he have set the fire that that they talk about in... Although at the same time, I mean, it's a huge forest. If there hasn't been any rain for three months, like it said in the other article. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that wasn't very strange for Oh, no, no. I just, it, it, it's entirely possible they were natural forest fires. But I thought, isn't that interesting? There's two hermits living there. There's a fire that they suspect has killed Berger at one point, although he wasn't. And this other guy is caught for lighting fires. It's actually, I mean, for all these people that are just living up in the mountains, it's actually kind of miraculous there weren't more fires. It's true. By 1890, Laub has his own troubles with fire. This is from the Morning Call, Allentown, 23rd November, 1890. A woodchopper's bad luck. Benjamin Laub, an old woodchopper who lived in a hut made of rails, leaves, and earth in the vicinity of Straustown, Berks County, was very unfortunate. His humble residence caught fire in a mysterious way and was entirely destroyed. He occupied the dwelling all alone for the past 20 years. Mr. Laub had saved nearly $300 all of which money he has lost through an investment made at Reading several years ago. He is in very needy circumstances. Here's a strange bit of news that made the paper. This is from the Republican in Herald, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, the 23rd of December, 1896. The favorite flintlock rifle of Benjamin Laub, the hermit of Blue Mountain, brought only five cents at a sale in Roarsburg. Oh man, do I miss auctions. (laughs) (laughs) Five cents for a flintlock. Five cents for a flintlock. You probably have to take like eight box lots of glass with it, but it'd be worth it. Some beanie babies. <laughs> and a California raisin. <laughs> was that after he died that the auction was held? No, I don't know. It was before his death, so I don't know if he needed money or... No, to pay his fine? Maybe? Yeah, I, I don't know. Between his legal troubles after starting the fires, the warning he received from the judge not to start any more fires, and his own hut burning down, I wonder if he was sort of cautious... Maybe afraid to have open flames in his hut because there's this other note in the Shippensburg News, Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, 8th of January, 1897. A Bethel Township correspondent writes to a Lebanon paper Benjamin Laub, who resides at the foot of the Blue Mountains, has not lighted a candle or lamp for 20 years. When he wishes to illuminate his place, he opens his stove door. Strange little note, but I, I wonder if it's, you know, like. If he had it couldn't opened possibly things. be for 20 years because didn't the other stuff just happen? Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I'm just wondering if that's, you know, who knows what they exaggerate in these papers. So here we get into the 1900s and he's still a curiosity. There's still notes about him in the paper. 
and he's still alive. In a rude hut made of hickory saplings and covered with sod, Benjamin Laub, who says he has never seen many women and does not care for them, has for 36 years lived a hermit's life in the Blue Mountains near Straustown, Berks County. We're hitting all the marks here, right? Like, this is this is hermit trope 101, right? <laughs> Doesn't like women, had a bad experience. That was from the Harrisburg Daily Independent, 17th of June, 1908. So sometime within the next year, he's taken to the almshouse. Harrisburg Independent, April 24th, 1909. Reading, April 24th. Benjamin Laub, who for many years resided alone in a hut on the Blue Mountain, died today at the Berks County Almshouse. He was familiarly known as the Blue Mountain Hermit, one of at least two. <laughs> he was 83 years of age and would not consent to leave his solitary abode until sickness overtook him and friends insisted upon his removal to the almshouse. From the Lebanon Daily News, 26th of April, 1909. Was happy as a hermit, never knew who was president, and never cared. <laughs> right? Sounds like the life, doesn't it? <laughs> Benjamin Laub, who was dead at the Berks County Almshouse, was a hermit of the Blue Mountains for more than 36 years, practically exiling himself from the world during the whole period. His hut was made of hickory saplings and was hardly more than six feet long and four feet wide. Here he spent his life, ever since the charcoal burners along the Blue Mountains went out of business, for he came of a family who were noted as the best woodchoppers in Berks County. The cares and worries which harness humanity never seemed to bother the aged hermit. Unable to read or write, he lived in seclusion. He never knew who was the President of the United States and did not cast a vote for more than 40 years. The furnishings of the shack were a wood stove, a kettle, a boiler, and a blanket. He lived on vegetables that he raised. Friends who knew the family years ago sometimes carried him bread and meat, and the poor directors during the last few years allowed him a monthly sum for support. Then we get a note in the Reading Times on the 28th of April, 1909, the funeral of Benjamin Laub, the Blue Mountain Hermit, was held on Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Reverend D.D. Trexler officiated. Interment was made in the Union Church Cemetery. And here we get a note from the Lebanon Courier, April 30th, 1909. Aged Hermit dies. Blue Mountain Woodchopper's life ends at 80 years. Benjamin Laub, aged 80 years, who for 36 years lived the life of a hermit in a little hut at the foot of the Blue Mountains, died Saturday morning in the Berks County home of Gangrene. The old hermit became ill several weeks ago, and the residents of that neighborhood brought him to the county home on April 10th. The deceased was born in Adamstown, Lancaster County. He was the son of Samuel Laub, and was one of seven children, four sons, and three daughters. When he was still young, his father moved to the foot of the Blue Mountains in Bethel. There the family lived in little quarters, scarcely better than the one which the old hermit spent the best part of his life. When he was young, he never attended school, but learned the art of woodcutting, and there were few people in that section who could cut more wood in a day than he could. Thirty-six years ago, they started to cut down the forest in that vicinity, and the deceased was one of the woodchoppers. When he was still able to work, farmers gave him employment, but as the years passed, he became too old for this work, and he received an allowance from the Burke's poor directors. The old hermit was never married. His parents were members of the Reformed Church and are buried in Roersburg, but he never became connected with any church. He was buried on Sunday morning at the Lutheran Church, Roersburg. So 40 years later, there's a remembrance of him printed in the paper, though. By kids or something that knew him or people in the area? This is by a local folklorist, a Dr. Alfred Shoemaker from F&M College. Different Shoemaker than the other Shoemaker writes uh, um, 
Pennsylvania folklore books. Straustown Hermit spun tall tales. One of the most distinguished spinners of tall tales in the Pennsylvania Dutch country was a Blue Mountain hermit by the name of Benjamin Laub. The family hailed from Adamstown. For 38 years he lived a solitary life at the foot of the Blue Mountain, up above Straustown, in a hut made of hickory saplings and covered with grass and ground. The hovel was small to begin with, but as time went on the lower ends of the saplings rotted away, and as consequence the shack shrank until hardly five feet in diameter. In his younger days, Laub was one of the best woodchoppers in that section. By working hard and living simply, he managed to save a dollar here and there. Whenever he had ten or so saved, he would walk to Reading to a bank, a distance of about 23 miles. In most cases, it took him two days to make the trip. He would never sleep in a hotel or a strange house, and he always started for home as soon as he had placed the money on deposit, very rarely remaining in the vicinity for even half an hour. He looked on populated places with a superstitious awe. On these trips, he slept in the woods along the road, covering himself with leaves. On several occasions, he slept in the woods late in the year, and on awakening in the morning, found himself covered with snow. After many years, he had saved several hundred dollars to keep him in his old age, but alas, the bank failed, and he found himself penniless. Times were changing, too. The forges and furnaces were folding up, and woodchoppers no longer found employment chopping wood for the burning of charcoal. So here we have an iron forge connection, too. Benjamin Laub no longer came to the village store, paying for speck und brut bacon and bread, with a hoarded gold coin as he used to when times were prosperous. No longer did he shave using his trusted axe, which he said was sharper than the best razor in the state. Instead, a grisly white beard almost completely covered his face. His head became covered with a thick crop of white hair, matted together. The clothes he wore were never changed until they had rotted from his back. His shoes he tied to his feet with ropes. He lost sight of one eye, a cataract having grown over it, and the other grew dim. Of what use, in fact, was sight to him anyway, for there was no window in his hut to admit any light. He always replied, when asked what he did for light in the hut, that when he opened the door of the stove, the flames from the wood fire sufficed. His bed consisted of a few plain logs, rubbed smooth from the passing of many years. Only an old torn blanket hung there to cover him on the coldest mountain nights. Around the wood stove, in his hut, he spun his tall tales. Once he told of how, after a long day's work at cutting trees, he sat down to rest on a black burnt log several feet thick. All of a sudden, he continued, the log began moving, and when he took a good look around, he saw that he had actually sat on one of the larger black snakes that lived in the mountain rocks. One day, he said, a snake passed him with the terrific speed of a railroad train, and yet it took several hours for it to pass. That was from the Lancaster New Era, April 5, 1949. The Pine Grove Herald published a photo of Laub in 1950. One of, I don't know how many, there, there was a few views of him taken. A reader who knew him wrote the following letter. So this is from the Pine Grove Herald, 29th of September, 1950. Dear Sirs, this is to inform you that someone has handed me the Pine Grove Herald with the picture of the Hermit of the Blue Mountain. His name was Benjamin Laub, although he was better known then as Benjwich. Still others called him Benevel. I knew him well. I was about 10 years old at that time and often visited him. The visitor on that picture was Levi Ritzman, a storekeeper from Straustown. Mr. Ritzman quite often took some food to the hermit, as did many other people. I cannot recall that he ever did anything but cut wood and dig in his garden. I also remember a few stories that he, he used to relate. One was something like this. He was cutting wood, got tired, and so sat down to rest and smoke his pipe. 
He thought he was sitting on a black burnt log, but he went to strike his match on the log. This thing started to move. He jumped up and saw that it was a black snake, which he claimed took two and a half hours to pass by him. Another but true story was that when his father was buried, the undertaker asked the hermit if he wanted to see his father one more time. He answered, no, I've seen him often enough. His parents lived at the foot of the Blue Mountain between Bethel and Schubert. He also had brothers and sisters, but of course, I did not know them, nor the parents. His hut was about one mile east of what is now the Straustown Gun Club. The hut was covered with ground from the bottom to about halfway to the top, and that is a stovepipe chimney, which you see at the side of the hut, he means in the picture. He had one of those old kind of wood stoves, and for a bed he had two logs side by side. He slept right on the bare logs and had only a small narrow door to go in and out of his home. If I can imagine right, the hut was about four feet high and two feet wide, with an opening of about five inches wide across the top for light. This gave the only light in the hut, as there were no windows. He was very poor, and his soles tied to his shoes with carpet rags and strings. You could easily see when he traveled over the dusty roads with the marks of the strings on his shoe soles. Finally, his hut got so bad that the community built a shanty for him, but the hermit refused to move into his new home. I only received the paper tonight, and it's now 11.30, so I'll have to call it bedtime. I thought that your readers might be interested in some of this information. Yours, Jacob N. Reber. So I don't know if any photos of Matthias Berger exist. I hope that they do. A Womelster photographer took several photographs of Benjamin Laub. I do own one of these, so I will put them in the show notes. I hope to own more. <laughs> Before we get on to our next Berks County curiosity, I want to talk about 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. I want to thank them for sponsoring Strange Familiars. If you have a puppy, maybe you got a puppy over the holidays, and you need help with your puppy, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. Their relationship-based approach helps you and your puppy become perfect for each other. They can help you with mouthing and biting issues, with potty training, fear, nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture or shoes or other things the puppy shouldn't be chewing on. They can help you with crate training, hyperactivity issues, leash training, and more. They have online sources, a secret Facebook group. Of course, one-on-one options are also available. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Let 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods. They'll teach you what to do and also what not to do. Again, that's 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. You can find them at sithappens.us. You're up. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to do like a little like segue. (laughs) So this next character is not really a hermit. He has hermit-like qualities. Yeah, he's uh, he's very interesting. It's interesting to me how many of these communities have someone that everyone kind of knew. I guess in the, the days before dedicated mental health and establishments and dedicated homes for the elderly, people just kind of relied on other people. Yeah. Which has a sweetness about it, which I don't know would be as common today if people had to be 
Yeah, well, communities were a little more tight-knit, and I think there was an idea that he's one of us. And, and Yeah, they're for, but for the grace of God go I, kind of, a, yeah. as opposed to... So what was this guy's name? Uh, his name was Thomas Jefferson Cummings, but everyone in town knew him as Tom Collins, or Tommy Collins. It's so interesting how, because I, I saw him as, like, Tommy Collins. Mm-hmm. When I first came across him in, in a book I have on, like, Reading Curiosities and stuff. How does one... Well, there was a, what they called the, the Tom Collins hoax of 1874, wherein there was this really hilarious joke where people would say, basically, ask someone else if they had heard that Tom, what Tom Collins was saying about them. And when they couldn't remember who Tom Collins was, they would run around asking for Tom Collins. Mm-hmm. So in reaction to that, someone came up with a drink. So when people were running around saying, where's Tom Collins, they would give him a drink. <laughs> So my suspicion is because he was kind of always around. Mm-hmm. They might have known him as Tommy to begin with, and, and that became Tommy him. Collins because. Oh, that's interesting. In relation to that, I mean, it really fits because he was born in 1855. So, in his early days of eccentricities, would have probably coincided with the end of that sort of newspaper-based sensation. Yeah, and these kind of trends lasted a bit longer. Yeah, they and, just weren't so immediate. Yeah, so. things in general lasted a bit longer. Fashion lasted longer. Like, everything didn't change the way it does. Like, now everything changes so quickly. It's funny you should mention fashion. He was a dedicated man of fashion. Was he now? He was. And it was convenient because in his family there were tailors, printers, and photographers, which makes it easy to be a dandy. <laughs> <laughs> And he was known as a bit of this. Sometimes they refer to him, and I, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, but I've only ever written it, Beau Brummel. I mean, I know that that's sort of like the precursor to a dandy or a fop. Right. That's actually, the way we pronounced it in other episodes, in okay. past episodes. So we're going to go I, with that. Yeah, I actually got in trouble online for <laughs> for saying that a fop and a Beau Brummel were the same thing. And someone had to, well, actually me, and tell oh. me that they... Are of different time periods and have different connotations. Didn't you get a book on dandies? Oh, I did get a book on dandies. I forgot you about did. that. Yeah, at the, the same place I got that book on. Uh... Yeah, it's like a period um, book on dandies. I love dandies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Some of your favorite things. Dandies. How did you end up with me? Hey, you're not a dandy. I'm a monster. <laughs> I'm way closer to Benjamin Laub than I am to uh, Tommy Collins. Oh, definitely by a long <laughs> shot. So in his youth, he was known for being like quite the fashion plate and he had these eccentric um habits like running for political office like running for president at the age of 26 before i think you were even legally allowed to so later on tom collins is known for being this sort of hermit eccentric man who wore a suit which was covered entirely in pins and badges yeah they call him sometimes the badge man the button man i've seen pictures of him i really want to own a picture of this guy he's just he's covered in these pins well, the interesting about thing about him which i had absolutely no knowledge of before you said hey can you do the research on this guy is that his father was the first amber typist in lancaster county a photographer a photographer i even found an ad which stated that he specifically made tin types for pins so this would have been something that would have been within the family from the time he was a little kid he was born pretty much the same year that the amber type was uh, patented. Oh, wow. 
And so he would have grown up in this family of photographers. Both of his uncles were photographers as well. Photographers of some renown because uh, it was very expensive at this point to buy the official patent to produce the right kind of these patented amber types. Okay. And so he was the first one to get a patent in Lancaster County. So the family was not down and out by any stretch of the imagination. They were not of the uh, means of the, the Laub family. No, and the, his mother was a tailoress, as it says in the, in the census, and his sister did that as well, which was really perfect for his hobby of having the most extensive wardrobe in America. <laughs> so this is an article from the Reading Times from 1881 on Tom Collins, the muchly dressed young man who makes his appearance in New York. Muchly dressed. Tom Collins, termed the best-dressed man in America, is a well-known character. The New York Sun of Monday last contained the following reference to him. The boy peddler with 29 fine suits of clothing, 24 overcoats, and 33 pairs of kid gloves has his home in Reading and is well-known to all traveling commercial men. Periodically, the boy breaks out in local advertisements, announcing an addition to his extensive wardrobe as follows. Thomas Jefferson Cummings has the honor to announce that he has just added another suit to his fall afternoon wear, and now his fine wardrobe consists of 40 fashionable fall suits and 24 overcoats, etc. Wow. This is at a time when people might have two sets of clothing. Right, yeah, yeah, like yeah. really. It is his boast that he can appear on the street every day in the month and wear a different fall, a full suit of clothing each day and allow at least three changes on Sunday. Cummings is about 18 years of age peddles notions with a basket on his arm, and helps to support a widowed mother, pays cash for all he gets, sells clothes, works hard, and is a standing Republican candidate for Congress in that Gibraltar of Berks County democracy. On the streets of the city, his appearance is that of a Beau Brummel. His dress is exceedingly loud, his weakness running to green kid gloves, corn-colored ribbons, pink eyeglasses, and silk hats of the latest style. Wow. In the country, on business, his appearance is that of a poor, humble, meek, and lowly Hebrew, and his customary salutation to the people he calls on is, have pity on a poor boy and help him along. <laughs> the young man is exceedingly kind, affable, and agreeable, and succeeds in selling large quantities of goods at fair prices. The farmers have a strong liking for him. When they visit Reading on business and see the well-dressed young swell, sweeping past in broadcloth, kids and gold-headed cane, they little dream that the young man is the peddler boy they know so well at home. His savings are entirely invested in clothing and articles of adornment. At times, he is not seen for weeks. He is then out on the country highways, coining money in a small way. He neither smokes nor drinks and has no expense worth speaking of. Then suddenly he will break out in Reading, set the fashion for a week or more, and is suddenly disappear. He generally leaves home on Monday morning, invariably starting before dawn in order that his acquaintances may not see him in his country makeup. He carries a large basket filled with goods, and he orders his fresh supplies shipped to various points along his route. On Saturday night, he generally retires, looking decidedly weather-beaten, but if there is no opera or theater in town, he generally is in the front row of the parquet by nine o'clock, dressed to rival the most fashionable swell in the land. He is quite a favorite among commercial men who call him Collins the Boy Millionaire. <laughs> it is currently reported that he is to be married and that an insurance has been placed on him marriage insurance of $125,000. Cummings claims that he has the largest wardrobe in the world of any person of his age. He is 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighs 128 pounds. A little thing. A little tiny little slip of a thing. <laughs> you will not find it particularly shocking, and I'm not saying this to be offensive, but 
there doesn't end up being a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmed bachelor. Confirmed bachelor. So there are various reports about him throughout the years, whether it be when he's this younger sort of flamboyant character or when he's older and he looks like someone who's very much down and out. Mm-hmm. But they always say that he's extremely kind and parents um, urge them to be kind back to him. You know, and some people, there's this idea that you really should stay away from that weird guy. You right, know? yeah. But he was so well liked and they said in sometimes that he was, he wanted to sell things so badly that instead of like, trying to to haggle and get the best price he was fine as long as he sold something like yeah. it didn't matter how low he sold it for people knew that that he would go lower and lower and he, i think he just maybe he just liked the the theater of the sale and and the ability to go from house to house and this is what he does he's listed as a peddler in the census his whole life even though he certainly could have gone into the family business i would assume i mean three members of the family were photographers right he's the oldest son uh, he has two sisters. It's curious to me that he didn't go into that profession, considering like how photographers at the time, you know, if you were in a small town and you were like a sort of eccentric, flamboyant character, photography is one of those areas where you'd be more at home, you mm-hmm. know, like than, yeah, than sure. the quarry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> With your pink glasses and silk hats. Yeah, right. I think he might have been able to make a go at that. My suspicion is that perhaps the kind of... Um, lack of sound judge that might that might have someone of that age invest in that many clothes as opposed to some aspect of his future might be sort of the precursor to to some someone with a mental health condition that was not what was the term that they used about the other guy not a first class mental health (laughs) hey a lot of us travel media mail at various times it's not a judgment (laughs) This is another little article about him, and he's still quite young at this time. And so at some point, and it's it's hard to tell when he makes this transformation from theatrical, eccentric, sort of moneyed person to what very much looks like a homeless person covered in pins. Right. And this is from the Reading Times. Yeah, 1882. So he's only in his 30s, not quite in his 30s yet. Our well-known fellow citizen, Thomas Collins, does not condescend to ply his avocation in Reading, but makes periodical excursions to the country districts to dispose of the merchandise that he carries around in a grip sack. In Reading, his peculiar province is to strut around the streets as an animated tailor's fashion plate. When at his home in this city, the mode of style considers it beneath his dignity to even talk of the peculiarities and profits of his business, and resents as an affront the intimidation that the gold rings that he peddles among the country people are purchased by the court. Tommy is not much gifted with conversational powers, but when in a social mood and not too sorely oppressed with the big thoughts of his gubernatorial (laughs) aspirations, he can relate some funny anecdotes of his experience in business, which show that the receptions sometimes accorded him do not differ much from the welcome with which other canvassers are received. Tommy said it is not an unusual thing to have the front door slammed in his face or to have a voice cry, we don't want any, from the second story window. In brief, he gives it to be understood that he's often treated as an interloper, and his appearance with his merchandise on his back is the signal for stern looks and discourteous reception. Tommy didn't express it exactly in that way, but that's the sum and substance of his statement upon the subject. So I, I really like the idea that he's traveling around, sometimes kind of taking on the role of like a poor pauper peddling his wares and then other times as this like incredibly moneyed fancy dandy yeah it's almost like this this double life yeah like he's he's uh 
Bruce Wayne and Batman. Yeah, I think he. There are some perhaps illusions of grandeur going on here because <laughs> he's he's Bruce Wayne and Batman. If Batman was a homeless guy, <laughs> not a superhero, <laughs> and sold pins. <laughs> so here is an ad for for his first presidential run. This is Thomas Jefferson Cummings, alias Tom Collins, Republican candidate for president of the United States, returned after two months' absence, making Republican speeches in Lancaster, Chester, Dauphin, and Lebanon counties. The 27th of July was his 26th birthday, and he will celebrate it in two or three weeks. He receives an English blue broadcloth, reception suit, lined all through with satin, cardinal pants, coat and vest, black, sleeves blue, pockets pink, and silk velvet collar. He has 26 new suits of clothing and 14 new overcoats for the White House. For the White House. <laughs> I'm just curious. I mean, maybe you, know, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but was it common practice for uh, candidates for presidents to have uh, their clothing listed? It sounds like a wedding where they list, like, you know, the, yeah. the bride was in a... What a character. I'm just imagining this outfit now. It seems to me that he was part of this of this article because... He wanted people to know he was getting that suit, I think. Well, maybe. And this is at a time also when, you know. Well, I, th- this is among advertisements. He could have taken that as a, as a classified ad. Oh, I absolutely think he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Glad to see he was, had some progressive politics. You know, Republicans at the time were the m- more progressive. Party of Lincoln. Party of Lincoln. Now, uh, Tommy Boy starts to get in a little bit of trouble. Does he? Yeah, and I don't know if this is like... I'm not poking fun at all. I think that he probably had some mental health issues. Yeah. Or, or maybe he just ran out of money because he blew it all in clothes. I mean, it's, it happens. Yeah, who knows? So this is an article called Tom Collins in Trouble. Arrested in Lancaster, how he is tormented by the hoodlums of that town. The Lancaster Examiner of yesterday states that among the prisoners at the station house of that place on Monday evening, Mr. Thomas Cummings, alias Tom Collins of Reading, occupied one of the cells. At the hearing before Mayor Morton of Lancaster yesterday morning, Tom said, They had a regular fire racket with me again last night. They ran at me with a lighted newspaper, and I told the policemen to protect me, but they wouldn't do it. Tom is deathly afraid of fire. And at the depot Monday night, a crowd of silly boys and brainless men were teasing him, and at last patience ceased to be a virtue with the harmless peddler, and he picked up a stone and threw it, for which he was arrested. The crowd that were teasing Tom should have been arrested and not him, said Mayor Morton. You'd better stay out of town when they will not annoy you, continued his honor. I know, I ought to, quoth Mr. Cummings. My home is in Reading, and I pay all my taxes there. I don't pay any taxes here, only in Berks County. You can go. When taken to the lockup Monday night, $8.93 was found on him. Tom and this sum he had in a small bag. He picked it up and as he walked away said, I guess I got all. Goodbye. Mayor Morton was indignant that Tom would have been arrested. It's a shame that a harmless, simple-minded fellow or anyone that is unfortunate cannot walk along Lancaster streets without having a crowd at his heels guying him. Tom Cummings is a poor, simple man with a foolish love for outlandish suits of clothes. He attracts attention by his eccentricities, the boys, the hoodlums of the streets, and even young men who should have some sense of decency take a delight in tormenting poor Tom, scaring him with apparent attempts to set his gaudy clothes on fire, and in many other rough ways show their ill-breeding and savagery. Tom has more sense than his tormentors, and the latter should be made an example of. 
Anyone who can take pleasure in making fun of another's infirmities and sporting with his weakness belongs to the savage class and should go to the Fiji Islands on the next boat. Apologies to the Fiji Islands. <laughs> I was going to say, is that a reference to the Fiji cannibals? Oh, yeah. Of, of our previous uh, I would assume episode. so, yeah. I would like to defend Tom Collins. Yeah, it's every right to... to, 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 to I don't think he did anything wrong. No, he was defending himself. No, there's who they're trying to burn him. Like literally, they're coming at him with fire. Like this is like I... that was from uh, the Reading Times in 1887. Okay. So he's about 30 years old at this time, a little over 30. Tommy continues to get in some trouble. No one with that amount of fabulous clothes is going to lead lead a quiet life. <laughs> <laughs> so this is called Tommy Collins locked up. Constable Strauss of Lower Alsace takes him into custody. Just as a note, the Alsace is the area where Jenny Beam was from. Yeah, that township. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tommy Collins spent the night in the station house. At 11.30, an odd couple walked down Franklin Street. The one was readily recognizable as the irrepressible crank Tommy Collins, and as they marched down the steps of the receiving room at the station house, turnkey Haig at first thought that Tommy had brought in a friend for a night's lodging. The stranger said, I'm Constable George F. Strauss of Lower Alsace. I've got my papers to prove it. I want this man locked up. An electric button was promptly pushed by the turnkey, and Sergeant Hintz responded. Constable Strauss then accused Tommy of wickedness on Mount Penn in the vicinity of Spuler's. It appeared that he had made a gold speech and otherwise excited the people. I will see that a warrant is sworn out against him, added the constable. Tommy interrupted the charges several times and said, Taint true. This constable had no right to arrest me. I went right with him and paid the car fare into the city. I only make political speeches for money and can convince my hearers equally on the silver-gold populistic or prohibition platforms. A gang of farmer boys assaulted me on the mountain. I took supper with some distinguished gentlemen and then took a stroll and a crowd of hayseeds who don't like no city folks (laughs) (laughs) followed me and stoned me and threw sand in my eyes. He wasn't nice, and I only defended myself. I have too many friends to let me stay in prison. Tommy's woes were finally cut short by the turnkey inviting him to accompany him to his night's quarters. Again, he's doing nothing more than being Tommy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think at this point, if you're different in any way, you're a target. Well, I mean, that, that, it's been like that up until very recently. Yeah, so. exactly. That previous one was from... Uh, 1887. So I think this is the point shortly after this that something happens. Like his dad dies in maybe 1880. At this point, he's had 20 years to run through potentially any money he had left from his his father's Mm -hmm. uh, will. So he falls on some hard times and he's arrested again. Tommy Collins, a character well known in the city and throughout the county, was taken into custody by Officer Steckler late last night and locked up at a police station. Tommy was found in the attic of the building of the Pennsylvania Telephone Company on North 5th Street, where it is said he has, unknown to the telephone people, been lodging at night for some time. <laughs> I guess the the deeper question at this point is, where are the clothes? You're right. Yeah, I was actually thinking that. Like, does where, someone own them? Did he sell them off because he needed money? Like, Yeah, where did they go? Yeah. This is Tommy a few years later. This is about the time. Um, so this is quite a few years later, actually. Yeah. This is actually about the time that I found that he ran for president again. <laughs> again, I guess. It's, yeah, this is 1917. So. Yeah. It's the Reading Times. What date's that? From the 5th of April. April 1917. 1917. Tommy Collins jailed despite his threat. 
With the promise that he would use a butcher knife on himself if he didn't leave Reading and stay away all summer, Tommy Collins, age 60, decorated with badges, made a strong plea for freedom before Alderman Dunn in police court Wednesday. Collins was charged with vagrancy by policeman Sailor, who found him sleeping in a hallway on Court Street. Tommy said that the country was too cold even for dogs this winter, but that now he was ready to migrate. A fine of $6 or five days was imposed. Doors and windows had to be opened during police court. So by this point, I guess he's, they're saying he's a he's. You know, because of his, the, his smell, the smell the windows had to be given off. So he's given up these like incredibly fancy clothes. So th- this must be the picture I've seen of him, where he he kind of has a leatherman kind of look. He's wearing a big coat, and it's just covered with buttons. Yeah, and they said that the kids. I'll read a little article um, from a a Berks County uh, folklore book. They talk about how the kids would specifically look for pins to give to him as a gift. And he would know instantly if it was one he had seen before or one he had. And oh, wow. He had this real love for, I mean, I guess that was his sort of flamboyant style making its appearance even when he wasn't able to correspond with that in other ways. Yeah. So we don't have pictures of Tommy. Here's a cool You can tell it's the same guy. Oh my gosh, it's not even that much later. Yeah, I mean, so there's photos of him in the book and his Bo Brommel get up yeah. early on. He has the little pin there. So we don't have pictures of Tommy, but maybe you can scan in these pictures from the book so people can see what he looked like. Yeah. It's quite startling. He resembles himself. I mean, you can definitely tell it's the same person, but he's wearing really incredibly fine clothing in the one picture. And in the other, just a humongous overcoat covered in pins with a hat that has a pin on it. And I'm going to guess just from the formatting... That the earlier ones are cabinet. That's like um, that seems like a cabinet card. Format. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That might have been taken from a cabinet card, although I, that might be a little bit later than this one. No, I think it's the same day. Oh, okay, okay. And then I'm guessing that's a later. Yeah. Probably in the 1900s. So th- this is just a little description of what the local people thought of him. Okay, this comes from uh, Echoes of Scola. Choice, Choice bits of Berks County history. Almost without exception, our correspondents told us about the meticulous care with which the peddler unpacked and repacked the suitcase in which he carried his wares. With apparently affectionate touch and polish, he would lift and place his rows of pins, pocket combs, almanacs, shoelaces, and small household articles. The showcase was usually an improvised platform on the back porch of a farmhouse or the village home. Tommy, a victim of claustrophobia, was unwilling to be indoors in unfamiliar surroundings. Some of his customers offered the comforts of home, but he steadfastly declined to eat or sleep anywhere except in shelter with easy exits, such as sheds or outdoor coal bins. In his sales transactions, the dickerings were in reverse. Instead of the customer attempting to beat down the price originally asked, Tommy would bid himself downward to absurdity. One informant said that he would never leave without making a sale at his home, because if the prospect remained adamant, the salesman would just sell it for nothing. Perhaps, after all, he was invoking one of the first rules of the good salesman, that is, to make certain that his next visit will be welcomed. (laughs) We are told that upon departing, with his case repacked, Tommy would survey and resurvey the area on the porch to make absolutely certain that he had not overlooked the replacement of any item. I kind of get this picture of him as being, and trust me, I can can relate, deeply neurotic. (laughs) (laughs) And he's... um, Takes one to know one. Yeah, just the idea that not only was he claustrophobic, but that he had to go back over and make sure that all the items were placed back in the yes. the suitcase perfectly. 
One, two, three. One, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a little description about him, which I really like because I think it tells it in the in the time period of people who actually knew him better than our presupposing ideas mm-hmm. of him. For those who know nothing about the character we are discussing, let us point out the origin of the phrase with which local mothers reprimand their bridge to teenage sons who like to wear all sorts of badges. You look like Tommy Collins. <laughs> I think we both had times when we looked like Tommy Collins, too. I certainly had jackets with pins all over yes. them, and I still have a real affinity for <laughs> pins. Peddler's coat was appliqued like a quilt with celluloid discs denoting many and conflicting loyalties. And still they come. We mean letters and phone calls supplying additional information about the eccentricities of Thomas J. Cummings, better known as Tommy Collins. From several persons have come statements that they own photographs of the peddler. One reports that the following statement is written on the back of such a likeness. My correct name is Mr. Thomas Jefferson Cummings. Jefferson is my middle name. I am named after the third president of the United States. Tommy Collins is only a nickname, a world history and popular nickname. And then another man starts to tell a little bit more about some of Tommy's other fears and eccentricities. Tommy's visits to the Spice Church area in Alsace Township. He remembers that the story was generally accepted that the peddler's fear of lighted matches was a result of a fire tragedy. And I looked this up and it doesn't hold any sway. There wasn't any like great big fire in his past that made him... Anxious. I think with all of the other ang- like anxieties that he has, this just seems to be just another one in the heap. Yeah. He was a very eccentric salesman with his peddler's pack plus a, a Jew's harp, which is now they just call a mouth harp. Or a jaw harp. Or a yeah. jaw harp. Um, it's what Buffy St. Marie used to play. I don't know. It's just <laughs> nearly as dated a reference. And a mouth organ to entertain his many hearers between sales. I remember his visits to our home in Churchtown. It was soon noised about that Tommy was in town and all that knew that his boarding and lodging were free at the Old Eagle Hotel. By evening, many were there to hear Tommy orate and play his harp and organ. His talk was a remarkable conglomeration of oratory. He was a slim fellow of medium height, very neat and clean, and he prided himself on his good manners. We are told that Tommy always detoured during his visits in Southern Brooks to the foot of the Welsh Mountains, where he always made a point of entertaining the mine workers. So then there's some question on really what Tommy did for money. Was he being supported by his family? How right. did he get the things he sold? Like a lot of things weren't adding up. One answer was that a Reading stationer was the benefactor. Another says that the family equipped him with articles for sale and some spending money to get him out of a, the way for a while. Still another version states that Tommy was left money by his father, but that this disappeared several years before the end came in 1921. So then another woman relates that she knew Tommy, but her grandparents knew him as well at a different time period. From my grandparents, I learned that in the late 1800s, Tommy was of the elite of Reading and delighted in driving the finest match black horses with silver-mounted harness and carriage along Fifth Street and Center Avenue. He always dressed in the height of fashion and with a high silk hat. About this time, fire destroyed his home and his wife and two daughters were lost. And this was the end of Thomas Cummings and the start of Tommy Collins. Today, a person of this kind would be taken to a mental institution, but in those days, he was taken care of by everyone. We as children were not allowed to embarrass him in any way. We would try to help him by saving any unusual badges or buttons to give to him for his collection, which adorned his long overcoat, which he wore in the winter and summer. He took great pride in this collection. Whenever a badge was offered to him, he knew at once whether he already had one like it. We kids and why missing always had something to give him. Thus, one became his great friend. We lived on a farm in Wyomissing and where he would stay. He always slept in the barn, 
but only after he asked permission. After assuring his host that he did not carry matches, Tommy would then take his package to the barn and return to the house for supper. His breakfast and lunch were always eaten elsewhere. At our place he liked to eat among the pines to the rear of the house. Before eating there was a ritual which he would perform. He would ask for a cup of water. This he would take into the pines, and bowing and mumbling, he would point this cup to the four points of the compass. He then drank the water and returned to the house for his tray. Then he would take to the pines, and one of his favorite dishes was mashed potatoes. That's very interesting. I have a story in the Bigfoot in Pennsylvania book about a wild man that would bow to the trees. He was very much afraid of automobiles and traveled the back roads to avoid meeting any of them. If he were on the road and heard an automobile coming, he would climb a fence and get about a hundred feet from the road and remain there until the car passed. Once or twice during a summer, the county officials would pick him up, take him to the county home for a bath, and get his clothes cleaned. And after a few days, he would escape and take up his planned wandering of the county. His winters were spent at the Rabazonia Furnace, where there was always warmth and the people of the community provided him food. There was a trust fund set up for him so that they could take care of his burial expenses. And there's a, a really cool picture of Tommy in his later years with all the badges on it. I mean... Yeah, we need to own one of these photographs. Yeah, it's like it couldn't be a cooler. He just couldn't be any cooler. <laughs> so it's possible that maybe he was a magician. He wasn't crazy. So I was out there bowing to the trees. With his ritual. Yeah. So at this point, things are going increasingly worse for Tommy and there's an article in the paper about his feet freezing. Tommy Collins, a well-known local character, was found in the Montello Brick Factory at YM Missing Monday morning in a helpless condition and unable to walk. He was taken to the almshouse and upon examination his feet were found to be badly frozen. He's 58 years of age. That's from the Reading Times, 12th of February, 1918. When I read the headline, mm. I imagined him like stuck in a puddle or something with his feet frozen in, in blocks. Wow. <laughs> That's a leap. Yeah. It is not any great surprise that someone who is living outside and has already had his feet frozen doesn't live for another 30 years. Mm. And just a few years later, uh, right before Christmas 1921, Tommy passes away. And this is the article on the funeral of Tommy Collins. With the burial of Thomas Jefferson Cummings, commonly known as Tommy Collins, one of the best-known characters will pass into the pages of local history. He has made friends in the city who visited the chapel of F.F. Seidel Tuesday evening to see Tommy for the last time. Many a person came into the chapel and recited a deed or a good act which Tommy had done for them during their lifetimes. Yesterday, friends continued to go to the chapel and pay their last tributes to him. The funeral services were held at 3 o'clock, the body was attired in a black suit and rested in a solid oak casket with silver trimmings. He was buried beside his mother in Charles Evans Cemetery. The pallbearers were W.B. Fisher, W. Keim, F. Diffendiffer, and the tributes were a wreath of roses by from his sister, Mrs. Frank C. Wilson, and her husband, carnations from the nephew, chrysanthemums from Mr. and Mrs. M. A. Cummings, and narcissus from his other sister. I wonder if he told them what to get to buy. Here's what you get. Here's what I would like to be buried in. And I would hope they got him a fantastic suit. Right. <laughs> Someone needed to take so, up a collection. To... How old was he when he passed? Well, let's see. He would have been, well, not quite 70. Pretty long life for someone who lived outside and was frozen and didn't really have a... Yeah, I mean... The... A consistent... I'm continually surprised at these hermit stories 
you know, how long these guys live. He seems to, for a long period of time, have a home. He's living with yeah. his mother or his sister. Um, the idea that he somehow had a wife and daughters was completely fabricated. There was never any evidence of that whatsoever. He always lived with his mother till she died. And then I think that's when things kind of fell apart for him even more in, so. In a William Woodruff kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not from the loss of a, you know, a great love, but maybe the loss of a mother are the only people that really su- had a hand in supporting him. Right. Still, it, you know, a very, very interesting life and seemed like he did what he wanted in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel sorry for him that um, it must have been of great distress to him to go from having that kind, that level of supposed sophistication to what he became. Although he appears, like, in the pictures to have this, like, the pins are just another affectation of his sort of flamboyance, I think. I and, think so. And, and you know... I, I if, love the idea of a of a coat like that with all those pins. You can't be Bruce Wayne and Batman forever. At some point, That's true. you're just going to end up being Batman all the time. Mm-hmm. That's not the last of the Berks County characters we'll be digging into. It's the last for this episode. It makes me uh, sad for a time when people knew each other so well as to have these sort of like walking urban legends. Yeah. Well, I've got another one I'm working on. We'll present it down the road a little bit. It's a different nature. It's not a hermit and it's not a guy like Tommy. It's different, but he became this sort of uh, another local, sort of local legend. I'd like to hear, I mean, because I'm sure this is regional. Everybody had like a little local legend. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah if there yeah. was like, so if he, like maybe if, if listeners had some sort of amazing local legend story. Yeah, could we'd love to hear. Like to hear that. Absolutely. You know, if Tommy Collins was around today, you know where he could get a, a pin? Oh, we could make him a pin. He could become a patron of Strange Familiars and get a pin. That's true. Or books, or t-shirts, or stickers, or maybe he just wanted the extra content. Mm-hmm. Over 60 episodes now, with more coming every month, you can become a patron, as I'm sure Tommy would have if he was around today. Yeah, I definitely... Yeah. As, you're tra- as you're traveling around with your with your wares, mm-hmm. what better thing to do than to listen to Strange Familiars, where you're going from house to house peddling your pins (laughs) is that a career option i'm gonna put that on my list of possible career options patreon.com slash strange familiars there's monthly subscriptions there's yearly options now there's a start to your tommy collins jacket exactly if you if you want to get going at the pin level you can check it out again that's patreon.com slash strange familiars that's the best and easiest way to help us with the podcast We could not do it without our patrons. We try to thank them every episode. Thank you guys so much. We do Strange Familiars with your help. We could not do it without you. If you don't like the idea of a monthly or yearly subscription like Patreon, you can make a one-time donation. Just go to the show notes at strangefamiliars.com. Look for the paypal.me link under any episode. Click that and you can make a one-time donation. Everyone can help by liking and subscribing wherever you're listening whether that's YouTube or on any of the many, many podcatchers out there, and leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. 
So, Tommy's father was a photographer. Yep. He, he was an ambrotypist. Is that the word? Yeah. <laughs> now explain to us what an ambrotype is. Well, after the daguerreotype, uh, which was the first form of photography, which is on a piece of copper, which has silver on top of it. The second form of photography was an amber type where we learned to capture an image on a piece of glass. Okay. It's, someone will correct me if I get this wrong, so I'm just going to say it. I think I, I always get this flipped. It's a negative that becomes a positive when something, either a black piece of fabric or what's more typical, like a black uh, lacquer was applied to the back of the glass. Now, what it did was, it's more stable in some respects than a daguerreotype in that you could touch it and you're not going to ruin it, but it's more fragile in the sense that it is a picture on a piece of glass. So to that end, they were kept in the same kind of cases that daguerreotypes were kept in with a a brass mat and a preserver and then, you know, either a leatherette or thermoplastic case that would go around it. So this is um, an amber type that's fairly typical of the time. It's This is a little boy. I think it's ever so slightly lightly tinted, or it could be just a little bit of age. <laughs> it sometimes changes the photo a little bit. But it's a little boy seated next to a table. I thought it would be a good sort of, for someone who just started to collect cased images or photos from that era, and because it's in honor of Tommy Collins's father, who was an amber typist, I thought I would include an amber type. And they really occupy a very small window of time. I was going to ask. so Like mid-1850s to really not too far. I mean, I have like some ruby. Like I have a ruby ember type of my great-great-grandfather, and that's from the Civil War. But not too long after into the 1860s, because by then tintypes and CDVs have become popular. So they really are like a very... That's the, another kind of cool thing about amber types is that they're just... They occupy a, a very small window of time. So if you're interested in like... 1850s right right up through the civil war clothing and um that time period generally they're a neat little now these will often get because they're cased and because they're in the same cases that they were using for daguerreotypes they'll often be called daguerreotypes yeah like sort of the 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 easiest way if you're just starting out trying to identify them is daguerreotypes are the only ones that have that completely mirror-like finish Mm -hmm. amber types do have sort of a, ref- you know, I mean, they have a reflective quality, but it's not the same as like a, that, that mirror that you get with a, exactly. a silver on a daguerreotype. Yeah. So this is a little boy? Yep, it's a cute little boy. And our first amber type, I think. I don't think we've done an amber type yet. But it's in a half case, and so it's not, you know, I tried to find an amber type from, just for myself to start collecting because of the relation to to the story about Tommy Collins, but the only one I could find if his father's was gone for $8,000. So wow. I decided, you know, maybe we'll get a car. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a, a really cool thing. Maybe like uh, you were saying, maybe somebody wants an example of each kind of photograph. They want a tintype. They want a CDV. Plus, I mean, to, to me, it's just hard to not look at these little captured moments of time. And they, they really have a ghostly kind of quality. Too. I mean, I really think there is something magical about especially this kind of early photography. Yeah, and they, just, they look great in the cases. Yeah. They just do. I'll put a photo of this up in the show notes under this episode. You can click on that. It should take you to our Etsy shop, shop name Lost Grave. You can buy this and other photos of the week. And Allison has started adding uh, various other antique photos as well. And we'll continue to as time goes on. So we have a photo of the week section. We have an antique photography section there. While you're there, you can pre-order 
Where the Footprints End, Volume 2. You can pick up my art book, Apparitions, Illustrations of the Other. Actually, you can get any of my books there. Yeah, it'd be odd to just sell one of them, and the <laughs> other ones are like, yeah, we put those in Facebook Marketplace and just have people come to the house. <laughs> the, the original art choices are getting slim, but there there are there is original art up there, and I'll add more. That's I get some t- extra time here. Strange Familiar's t-shirts are there. There's all kinds of stuff. Check it out. Etsy shop name Lost Grave, or if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff will come up. You should recognize my artwork and my books and stuff. That'll come up, and that'll get you to our store. Chad just started his Ruck Rabbit Outdoors Etsy shop, so while you're on Etsy, check out Chad's shop. Also, check out our friends at Karmic Garden. They're on Etsy as well. Shop name Karmic Garden. I'll put links to all this stuff in the episode. I guess that's it for this week. We will be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com. Intro and background music is... <laughs> Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to Stonebreath.Bandcamp.com for more. We're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash StrangeFamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. And we are on Instagram at StrangeFamiliars.
away upon our pyres and away to coming fires.